0: This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. My guest is Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, author of Defending Beef, the Ecological and Nutritional Case for Meat. It was originally published in 2014 and is now available in a revised and expanded edition. Nicolette, how are you today?
1: I'm good. Thank you.
0: Great. Tell us how you went from being a vegetarian college student to an environmental lawyer to writing a book about defending beef.
1: (laughs) Well, it's an unusual story, as you can imagine. Um, I'll try to make it, I'll try to compress it. Um, I grew up in Michigan, and I did not grow up on a farm. My parents were both, uh, my father was a a tenured professor at the local university who was a history professor and my mom also taught there and taught in the languages department. They were really interested in um, good food. So my mom had a, uh, a big garden and we used to go to a lot of local farms to pick fruit and just to buy things, vegetables and stuff directly from the farm's eggs, that sort of thing. And I was not raised a vegetarian, but when I went to college, I was majoring in biology and I had this sort of interest from my whole life. My parents also, we we used to spend a lot of time outdoors. So we used to go on a lot of nature walks as a family. And my dad especially used to go out walking every day on long walks in the nearby woods near our home growing up. And um, so I always had this interest in nature and the environment. Um, but I didn't have any interest in being a vegetarian. And then I went to college and I was a biology major already involved in environmental causes. And there just seemed to be this idea that was everywhere that if you really cared about the environment, you shouldn't be eating meat and especially beef, (laughs) you know, (laughs) definitely not beef because, you know, in particular things like the deforestation in the Amazon were really being blamed very directly on beef and I actually remember walking into a meeting um, at, that I was attending at my college, um, and there was a sign outside that said, um, it was a table by the Sierra Club, and it said, the leading cause of the deforestation of Amazon is beef. Are you eating hamburgers or whatever? You know, like that it was that, that kind of, and I was just like, kind of, whoa, that like really grabbed me. You know, one of those really effective pieces of propaganda. And, um, and, and I, by the end of freshman year in college, I decided to stop eating meat. And I remember that I stopped eating beef first because I actually thought that's the biggest problem. And there was also this idea my parents were very health, health conscious, as I mentioned. And we, you know, we were, they were meat eaters, but they had this idea that they had kind of adopted from, you know, mainstream media, et cetera, that fat was, inherently bad for you, especially animal fat, and especially, you know, from red meat, that kind of thing. So I kind of had this idea already that it would be a healthier diet, but I started to believe really to be a good environmental citizen, you shouldn't be eating meat. So that idea kind of um, went, you know, my thinking on that kind of just stayed the same for quite some time. I didn't think too much more about it. I was a vegetarian for about 10 years, and then I was working as an environmental lawyer for National Wildlife Federation when I was hired by Bobby Kennedy Jr. to be the senior attorney for Waterkeeper Alliance in New York. And originally, he was just um, asking me to work on kind of water quality issues throughout the country. But I had only been there a couple of weeks when he approached me about working specifically on pollution related from concentrated livestock production and poultry production. And I, you know, initially kind of thought, that doesn't sound very appealing to me, but I, because I knew it was all about manure,
0: <laughs>
1: urine and manure, but especially manure. And um, and then I went, he, he encouraged me to go and to visit some communities that were really affected by large concentrated hog operations, first in Missouri and then in North Carolina. And it was a really life-changing experience for me because I hadn't seen this for myself until that moment in terms of the way sort of, you know, modern pork production was functioning. And I had a lot of opportunity to talk to people and see what was happening in terms of the water and the odor, it was all very apparent. And it was really appealing to me to sort of jump into this project because nobody was really doing anything about the problems that these people were facing. And it seemed like some, some help was urgently needed. So I felt like it was really important work. So I, I was working full-time at Waterkeeper on meat related issues. And I just kind of reinforced my vegetarian thinking through that um, that job. I also began to meet a lot of really good farmers and ranchers, including people associated with the Nyman ranch network of farmers and ranchers. And Ultimately, to make a really long story really short, <laughs> I married the founder of, of Nyman Ranch, Bill Nyman, and I moved to a ranch um, from New York to a ranch in California. And I continued being a vegetarian for many years um, as the wife of Bill Nyman and not just living on the ranch, but actively working on the ranch. I worked full time for seven years on the ranch.
0: You, you were even a vegetarian when you wrote the first edition of Defending Beef, right? That's
1: right. Exactly. So oh, it's kind of interesting. One of the things I was doing when I picked the book back up again was readjusted that whole discussion because I, I wasn't not, 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 not only was I no longer vegetarian, but you know, my, my thinking had further evolved on that whole, whole question. So I had been married to Bill Nyman, working on the ranch, living on the ranch for many years. And to his credit, Bill has never, you know, tried to push me towards meat eating. But what happened was that I um, was approaching my 50th Uh, birthday several years ago. And I started thinking, I really didn't want to go down this very typical pathway that so many Americans, including myself, was starting to go down of like um, being told, okay, you're getting to this age, you know, you're getting a little heavier in your weight, your blood pressure is going up a little bit. We want to put you on these medications, you know, and I thought to myself, you know, I want to make sure, and also there was a history of osteoporosis in my family. So I decided I'm going to test my bone density. I want to make sure I'm just, in addition to, you know, all these other life, you know, um, sort of metrics that we use to test our health, like our weight and our blood pressure, cholesterol level, etc. I want to make sure I'm doing everything I can with my diet and lifestyle to make sure that I'm staying healthy rather than just, okay, I'm going to accept that this is the normal trajectory that you you know, take a very, you know, a cocktail of drugs every day when you get up in the morning. So, so I, um I decided that in order to optimize my, my diet, I really needed to reincorporate meat in it. And that was largely because I had done so much reading over the years. I was well aware of all of the benefits that meat provides in the diet. And I had really come to not believe this sort of mainstream narrative that meat and especially saturated fat from red meat is bad for you, which has you know, been so popularly accepted for so long. Um, I, I, and so it's kind of that was no longer a concern for me. and I really came to believe that I needed to have meat back in my diet just to be the healthiest possible person that I could be. Uh, because, you know, as we get older, we our dietary needs are different and they're more we're we need more we need more nourishment we're no longer just kind of coasting along so I decided several years ago to reincorporate meat in my diet and when I did it I was worried I would sort of regret it but it didn't turn out like that at all I really um kind of literally took a bite of a hamburger that my husband had prepared for me from beef from our own ranch and my only thought was just Wow, this is so delicious. Why was I not eating this food all these years? <laughs> you know, And so, um, <clears throat> even though I really understand and respect, you know, the reasons why people choose not to eat meat, um, I also think it's really important that people who decide they do want to eat meat should feel free to do that, that there shouldn't be any societal yeah. pressure or any internal feeling of guilt or shame if you're eating meat. In fact, I think meat is, extremely valuable and delicious and culturally important and so that's why I'm kind of on this you know passionate crusade you know these last you know the last decade or so to make sure that we are defending good meat that it that it needs and deserves it but that's my own kind of like
0: yeah let me ask my own
1: narrative kind of connects with my work there
0: right let me ask you, um, you call into question the dietary orthodoxies that say red meat is bad for you. So let me ask you, is red meat bad for you?
1: Yeah. Well, as I just referenced in, in the book, I did a lot of research about you know all of the studies. I had I kind of been talking to people about this for ages, and I've read lots of kind of mainstream media articles about this. And I, it was apparent that there's been a kind of a pretty serious reexamination of a lot of the work that originally began, you know, this thinking that red meat was bad for you. And I sort of trace it in the Defending Beef book. And by, you know, by in the process of doing the research for that book, I delved much more deeply into it than I had ever done before. And at that point, I realized <clears throat> that there's really not any, at this point in time, the the science... It's not a credible. There's not a consensus that we sh- that red meat is bad for you. In fact, it's kind of reversed. I think
0: so there's there's a difference between the science itself as science and the orthodoxy that has cropped up in the popular media and the health field, et cetera.
1: Well, it's kind of one thing I've realized. I mean, I, I really didn't understand this. I, you know, I was a science major in college, and um, both of my sisters are medical doctors. Actually, so I, you know, I have a my my father was a specialist in the history of medicine, in fact. And so I, you know, I've kind of been interested in medicine and its practice and been aware of a lot of aspects of it for a long time. And I really respect scientific research and this idea that we kind of keep trying to learn more and gain more knowledge and get more knowledgeable. But <clears throat> one of the things that I've realized that happens and I didn't previously understand is that when you have a, a, an idea that becomes really entrenched, <clears throat> it becomes really widespread It's very difficult to change course on that because not only is it something that people just kind of begin to accept as, you know, an an axiom that can't be, you know, questioned, but also what happens is if you've been teaching that, let's say you're a professor, for example, I had a, a conversation with a nutrition professor who was in her 60s and she had been teaching students for decades that fat is bad for you and in particular saturated fat and you know animal fat is like the worst thing And when confronted with, she actually heard a a speech that I gave um, and came up to me and talked to me afterwards. And she was really challenging me on this. And I realized in the course of that conversation that it was very hard for her Mm -hmm. to accept the idea that this wasn't correct because she had been teaching this for decades. So all of a sudden she had to acknowledge that she had sent hundreds, maybe thousands of students off not just with misperceptions, but out to practice in the real world, teaching their patients and, you know, people are advising the wrong thing. So it's a really big thing to undo your belief on that if you're a practitioner. So if you're a medical practitioner or you're a dietitian. So I've realized that undoing the science is now, I think, quite clear that saturated fat is not bad for you. And and especially if it's not oxidized, that's what my book kind of goes through some of the details of, there's now a a much more sophisticated understanding. And and the idea that fat from animals is in any way bad for you is just basically wrong, but you can do things to all different kinds of food, including the fat from animals that will make them um, bad for you. And a lot of meat is highly processed food that has a lot of additives of all different types, of all different kinds of chemicals and preservatives. And there are, I'm sorry, that was my stupid watch talking, (laughs) pardon me. Um, But I found that um, the studies about meat are almost universally, the health studies are almost universally studies that just clump every type of meat. But the few studies that have broken down what type of meat we're talking about and they make a distinction between processed meat and unprocessed meat and in particular even better if they make a distinction between grass-fed and you know and, you know organic and other labels like that which very few almost no studies do that but if you just even eliminate processed meat suddenly there is no correlation between any negative health effect and there's a really big um, study that showed that that was done by Harvard School of Public Health, which is ironic because the overall a message from the Harvard School of Public Health still is fairly anti-meat, but some of their own work has shown that 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 blanket condemnation of meat is just absolutely unscientific and is false. So, what happened in in the research that I was doing for the you know my books is I realized the science is no longer supporting, Should it doesn't support it. The current science does not support a recommendation against meat, but people that are practicing in the field of diet, nutrition and medicine have accepted this because it's an idea that's been out there for so long. So undoing it is very difficult, but I think the science is now quite clear that there's no reason to avoid red meat. And in fact, It's such nourishing food, and especially when you're younger or older, you really need a lot of nourishment. And it's kind of foolish to avoid the the red meat. In fact, I think an
0: example that you talk about is, you know, maybe 30% of pregnant women are iron deficient and red uh, beef has higher quality iron that your body can absorb more readily than other sources of iron.
1: Yeah. In fact, it's ironic because sometimes you'll get into discussions with people who are vegetarians or, you know, this will be, this happens, this kind of stuff happens all the time online, these online discussions about it. And people will say, well, look at India, you know, I mean, they have almost a whole nation of vegetarians. Well, first of all, I learned through my own research and discussing people who are experts in India that only about 30 to 40% of the population of India is vegetarian. So that's an important kind of like starting point. But there's also, there's been a whole... Significant body of research showing that uh, um, anemia is a very big problem in India, and in fact, the rates of anemia among pregnant women and nursing mothers in India are alarmingly high. Okay, so you 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 know people love to point and say, "Well, here's a real world example of how you can have vegetarians." Well, that's actually not a good example mm-hmm. because it's an example of a place where you have. But a lot of vegetarianism and you're seeing negative health impacts as a result of that. So there's you know there's a great deal of discussion about these issues now and I'm glad of that. But the the science is really actually quite clear I think that meat in and of itself, you know meat per se not the meat product, you know, the food products that we eat that may or may, may not contain meat. For example, 34% of the calories in the United States are from fast food. 34% of the calories that are consumed by Americans are from fast food now. And so if you think about that for a minute, you know that a lot of the meat that people are eating are probably fast food hamburgers and, you know, nuggets, chicken nuggets and things like that. That kind of food mm. is probably not good to be eating very much of because it's, you know, coming from there's a lot of issues with that food in terms of from right. the beginning of the sourcing and the preparation and all that like,
0: stuff. How do you separate out meat from processed meat, from the effects of processed food, like with a lot of corn syrup, things like that, uh, versus, you know, pure cane sugar and things like that? Um, but let's talk about let's talk about climate change. Um Let me ask you, are cattle causing climate change or could they be part of the solution?
1: Yes, well, that is a big question these days for a lot of people. And the short answer is that actually, I think we absolutely need cattle in order to fight against the effects, the negative effects of climate change. And that surprises a lot of people. But I think when you dig in, again, sort of dig into the science a little bit, it's really clear that there's a huge amount of carbon that has been lost from the soils of the world you know and there are lots of different figures that have been created but we know that an enormous portion of the carbon that was once contained in the soils is no longer there and that has been lost due to the fact that there's been you know widespread desertification and plowing of all you know land all over the world and so basically you know, the carbon that would have been in the soil historically has been lost to the atmosphere. And there's also that's kind of the the troubling part of the story. But then the upside is that we know that through various different kinds of human practices, agricultural practices, we can get a lot of that, that carbon back into the soil, which makes the soil much more productive and healthier, supports more life, holds more water, all kinds of wonderful things. And actually, pre. pre um creates healthier food ultimately because there will be more biological activity in the soil. And what we also know, and so that helps both the soils and the food system in terms of how much it can generate and how healthy the food will be, but also can actually help the condition of the atmosphere and getting carbon out of the atmosphere. So it's something that is sort of a no-brainer that we should all be focusing on this as a a planetary community.
0: So let's talk about the soil, the positive impact that cattle can have on the soil, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so that's the thing. When you're talking about, you know, sort of what are these um, practices that we can do as humans to try to get that carbon back into the soil, it turns out that livestock, especially grazing livestock, are a really important part of that. And I think to, to understand why that is, there's a couple of key points. One is that grazing animals the world over, tend to occupy those parts of the land where you actually can't even grow crops.
0: This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville.
1: So if you're talking about improving agricultural practices and doing cropping in a better way, I think that's an important conversation. That won't even do anything to improve the soils and you know the the land surface of a huge portion of the world's because they are land. hilly
0: or rocky or maybe too cold. There are lots of reasons, lots of places in the world that are not suitable for growing crops. And what are you going to do with those? So
1: exactly, and in fact, I ha- now having I you know I'm originally from Michigan, and so I'm sort of used to thinking of. A lot of green stuff and, you know, all over the place and uh, lots of water and, you know, then coming out here, I've lived in the West now for almost 20 years and it's a completely different place and I didn't understand how different these places were until I moved out here and lived here and visited a lot of ranches. And our own ranch is one good example of a place where you really can't grow crops. There's just a few areas of our ranch where you could grow some crops and even there, it wouldn't be too great. It'd have to be things like potatoes. you know. So it's really, really limited what you can do here. But it's an ideal place for cattle because it's um, breezy, it's cool. It doesn't get really hot. It doesn't get really um, warm. You know, so it's a great place, and it would have been a place that historically in the sort of prehistoric times even would have had a lot of wild grazing animals on it okay but those of course have largely disappeared due to human activity and so the beauty of cattle is that and other grazing animals is they can live on these lands they can maintain that biological activity in the soil they can maintain the ecosystem of all of the uh, wild you, animals that would have been if here. You,
0: part of that is that if you don't have animals then there's really something missing from these ecosystems. You, you did a study about the vernal pools, or you reported on a study about the vernal pools in California, just as an example of that. But if you, yeah. if you lack the animal impact, animal impact can be good. You have the weight of the hoof, digging uh, kind of little pits in the ground and, and stirring up, mashing in seeds. You have the, the value of the manure and the urine. And uh, even the value of the the animal eating the grass and the forbs and the legumes and the little trees and shrubs, uh, eating that, otherwise grasses just kind of kind of stay there and become a fire hazard and that kind of thing.
1: Exactly. And that Vernal pool study was a really interesting one because it was done by an environmental organization, and by a longtime environmental advocate. <laughs> and she was showing in her multi year, very comprehensive study that. In fact, it was sort of a, a great example of how science sometimes can really clarify important um, questions. There was there were a lot of vernal pools around California, and there were cattle in these areas. And there was a big push by a lot of environmentalists to get the cattle out of these areas, it felt, because it was felt you need to they protect were, these vernal pools.
0: Assumptions. Let's <laughs> yeah, make exactly. assumptions based on orthodoxy rather <laughs> than actually having hard data from studies. And so they compared vernal pools that were and were not impacted by cattle, and what did they find?
1: And they found that if you remove the cattle, the vernal pools disappeared. (laughs) I mean, it was just that simple. And it's so ironic because there had been this longstanding belief that the cattle were damaging the vernal pools. So and, and there are all kinds of super interesting things about the vernal pools. i would never even heard of a vernal pool until maybe right. in California. You know, there's sort of um, seasonal, uh, basically small wet areas that turn out to be really unique ecosystems into themselves. And they actually include all kinds of um, microorganisms and insects and all kinds of tiny creatures that are found nowhere else. So they're actually these really important ecosystems that cattle were not just creating, but maintaining. And so that's that whole thing that Alan Savory is so so eloquent in speaking about that there were animal impacts and ecosystems being created by the large grazing herds of the world for you know, millennia. And that when we don't have those wild animals, we have to use the domestic grazing animal to replace them. And that's, I really believe that now having spent the last 20 years looking at this. And I, I as well, like, like Alan Savory, I come from a background as a biologist and ecologist. And, you know, my assumption was for a long time that the cattle and other grazing animals that were raised by humans were probably harming these places. But I've really come around now to seeing it very differently from having witnessed it myself and also having um, read a lot of these very credible studies.
0: Yeah. So in your book, you explain the work of Alan Savory. And part of the idea there is that, you know, overgrazing is not really a thing as much as we're told. Overresting is really more of a thing. And so how does that work?
1: Yeah, so I think that I sort of, I in my book, I sort of argue that we just shouldn't use that term anymore, overgrazing, yeah. because it suggests that the problem is where you have grazing, you're going to have some negative impact, and where you have a lot of grazing impact, you're going to have a ton of, you know, negative impact. And it kind of reinforces this misperception that it's all about how many animals you have. And this is something that even among, you know, sort of rangeland scientists, there's sometimes, I think, still a perception that more animals are harmful. But I think again, sort of where's the science actually at, okay, I think there's more and more science showing being led by people like Alan, but also just sort of people and um, practitioners around the world are showing this in on their own um, plots of land where they graze, that you can have huge numbers of animals, but that it's really important how they're managed and that you need to have the animal impact and then you need to have the rest. And so the term overgrazing is unhelpful because it leads to all kinds of misperceptions and people focusing on animal numbers when you really should be focusing on, the, you know, as Alan Savory said, time, you know, how much time are these animals there and how much time is the land being allowed to rest in order to have that recovery period? So it's all about the management and it's not about the numbers.
0: So basically, you know, mob grazing, if you will, Uh, we're talking about a, a large number of animals on a piece of land on a paddock for a very short time. So they might be on there for a day. Some studies, some practices are even maybe a half day or less, but a lot of animals on a, and then they move on and they might not come back to that place for a year.
1: Yeah. And I, when I'm trying to explain this to people, I often say, if you just took, you know, like a, a kind of an imaginary ranch that was a hundred acres and you divided it into one acre parcels and you kept each, you know, keep the, keep your animals on each plot for three days approximately, you know, and moved them. And then they wouldn't come back. I mean, of course, it would never work like this in the real world, but some, this is just to kind of make it clear to people, you can imagine that that um, piece of land would be rested for the vast majority of the time, but it would get a heavy impact Mm -hmm. for a period of time. And the reason this is so compelling, I think, is because when you look around the world, at the large herds whether it's cape buffalo or bison or caribou that's kind of how they function they are they're large they're very concentrated and they're in an area for a while and then they move on
0: in, and in they nature, don't just stay in one up. place they're, in nature they're bunched up partly because of predators so they they're in nature they're bunched up together it's a you know a high concentration of animals on a relatively small space you take away the predators that's a problem we can kind of mimic that with the use of paddocks
1: yeah exactly and there's i think it's a really compelling idea to think about too because we still have all these issues in terms of the way livestock are managed in terms of uh, for example predatory pressure and i'm you know i'm a big advocate of the use of livestock guarding dogs for example and we have them here on our ranch But I think we need to figure out how to coexist with the predators because there's more and more Uh evidence that predators are really important for ecosystems as well. Uh And when you have your animals more densely congregated, it provides them more protection from predators just by virtue of the fact that they're not scattered and they're not out by themselves. They are they have that sort of herd protection like they would in nature. So I think there's more and more understanding of the ways to do things that's good for the soil and creates healthier animals because moving your animals regularly is really good for them in terms of getting them on clean ground, getting them on fresh vegetation. And then we know that that has a better impact on soils. And so there's just like all all of these different ideas and all the science is sort of coming together to show there, there are better ways to do things than a lot of common practices, but it's also showing that where you remove animals, I talk about this quite a bit in Defending Beef, where you remove animals, and this has been done in multiple places around the world in the name of restoration of land, it's been found again and again that the soil health and the ecological health declines. So it, there's at the same time, kind of like the heart health issue, you know, or the issue related to meat and food and diet and health, <clears throat> the science is more and more showing that that animal impact is actually essential for optimal ecosystem function. And so we need the animals, but how do we manage them? That should be the focus.
0: Let's talk about um, water, drought, desertification, that kind of thing, and the potential of cattle to positively impact the soil and thereby, you know, diminish drought. The American West is experiencing the worst drought in 1,200 years. What is the solution to this?
1: Well, you know, it's one of those thorny issues, again, people tend to think cattle in particular, but you know, all, just sort of all livestock, takes a lot of water, um, we're in a drought, it's so we not, need not to reduce the back, numbers. Just takes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we just, you know, we need to reduce the numbers. It's just a very simple math problem. <laughs> like <laughs> the number of gallons of you know water used per pound of food produced, therefore we need to reduce. Okay, things like that. It just completely ignores the whole idea of thinking in systems and thinking holistically and trying to understand how things are connected. And all the science we've just been talking about how important animals are to creating healthy ecosystems. One of the main impacts that they have is on water where you have good management. It's been shown that not only do you have cleaner water because the soil, is, you know, is acts more effectively as a filter. The because Soil water... is,
0: a, is a sponge and a filter. If we, exactly. if we have it's good soil.
1: Better, it yeah. holds it better. And it also, um, it cleans it through the process of kind of going through the soils and going down into, you know, whether you're talking about groundwater or surface waters. And you don't have the kind of huge runoff that you do um, where you don't have healthy soils because you don't have a kind of a hard packed, Uh, surface there are just lots of reasons why it's important in terms of the the quality of water but also the quantity because it holds the water as you mentioned
0: as a spot you lose that water you're not going to get it back if it runs off it's gone forever has no value after it runs off and it's running off mainly because your soil is poor soil itself is the biggest single reservoir for fresh water so you know if we can utilize that if we can make the soil a sponge and have it absorb the rainfall, then it solves so many problems.
1: Exactly. So I think, again, when we sort of talk about drought, um, the simple solution is, oh, cattle take water, so we have to reduce the number of cattle. The better solution, the real solution is, we know that good grazing actually leads to more water being maintained and more water being available for you know, the whole ecosystem. So we need to focus on improving grazing practices, you know, and when we do that, we will actually have a net positive impact, I believe, on the, the, you know, the condition of the the drought.
0: So is there more of an opportunity, even in dry lands that get maybe 10 inches of less of rain per year, is there an opportunity for agriculture to be more rain-fed,
1: yeah, well I think I mean I think we're clearly we have to as a world grapple with the fact that there's going to be more and more scarcity of water um both you know in rainfall and in terms of um you know what we're what we have available for all human uses that's coming from you know aquifers etc we know that a lot of aquifers are being de- am um, depleted because of, you know, they're being pumped out for agricultural purposes, etc. That, that's so- a
0: one way street. Once you take that, if you're dependent on fossil water, then it's going to be depleted and then it's going to be gone. And it even tends to dry up streams and rivers when you do that. And it causes something called subsidence where the land kind of collapses a little bit. But it's, it, it's, it's, it's unsustainable. It is a non renewable resource.
1: Yeah, because it does get recharged over time, but we're di- we're extracting it so much faster mm-hmm. than it gets recharged that it's we're kind of it's a losing game that we're that we're playing in a lot of places like the Ogallala aquifer are experiencing this. Mm-hmm. So so I think that we need to, as humans, grapple with this idea that we have to use water much more efficiently and more intelligently, and that we have to think more and more about what we can do in in the way we're functioning that makes water come into the soil and stay in the soil. So that whole thing that Alan Savory again talks about of effective rainfall and sort of making the rainfall more effective, getting more of it to stay in that ecosystem. And that's all about doing things in a smarter way and having that healthier soil biology because that is the kind of soil that will allow the water to come into the soil and will hold it in in the soils.
0: Let's talk about biodiversity. Pollinators are declining. Can cattle farming have a positive role to play in stopping the decline of pollinators?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point that um, I, I don't get a chance to talk about that very often. So thank you for bringing it up because it's it's really important. There was um, I actually wrote an article for the Atlantic about it a number of years ago. There was a very interesting study that was done at UC Berkeley, the biology department. So again, you know, this isn't like cattle industry funded studies or something. They were just trying to figure out how much impact wild pollinators were having economically for the state of California. And the reason they were looking at that is because of this, you know, sort of global phenomenon of the colony collapse disorder that's happening everywhere with basically bee colonies. Sees, you know, having so many problems and sometimes the whole um, colony dying all at once. And so there's been a lot of work done on that and trying to figure out why that's happening, but they were trying to figure out, okay, given that it's probably even more important that we make sure wild pollinators are healthy and that the right conditions exist for them to be able to do their job. And they found that 30 to 40 percent of pollination is actually done by these wild, wild pollinators in California, and so it was a really interesting study showing that um, you need to make sure your wild pollinators are healthy, even for your non-meat based foods. You know things like tomatoes and almonds and all kinds of other um, foods that are really dependent on the presence of you know the, the action of pollination, and in this study. They discovered that the majority of the wild pollinators relied on open land, most of which was grazing land. So they actually found that good grazing practices are an essential component to protecting wild pollinators. I mean, they just any grazing really to One, have a all ranch there
0: one would almost think that there's more biological diversity on a rangeland than there is in a monocrop field. You would almost think that.
1: <clears throat> yeah, well, you would definitely think that, I think, yeah. you know, because you, of course, one thing that people focus a lot on is, of course, the loss of, you know, charismatic species, you know, and people talk a lot about that. But I think there's more and more interest in this whole idea that, the biodiversity mm-hmm. starting at the microorganism level in the soil is actually the cornerstone of the entire ecosystem and that you have to have not just the presence of a lot of microorganisms in the soil, but a very diverse body of microorganisms in the soil. And that becomes the foundation for ecosystem biodiversity. And no one was talking, or maybe a few people were, but very few people and certainly nobody in agriculture was talking about that a few decades ago. But I think now there's more and more recognition of this idea so i think we need to think about biodiversity starting from the soil level and starting from the microorganism level and then think about it i always kind of think of it as an upward cascade of biodiversity which will happen if you have a a highly functioning soil with a lot of microorganisms and very diverse organisms they will support more diverse insect life more diverse plant life and that will support more diverse Animals of all shapes and sizes, and so the whole ecosystem is more functioning and more diverse.
0: Right. Well, I don't know if you're familiar with John Kemp, but he has this uh, plant plant health pyramid, where he shows if the if the soil is healthy enough to allow your plant to advance through all four stages of that plant health pyramid, then the plant becomes impervious to, to, it becomes somewhat invulnerable to pests and pathogens.
1: Yeah, exactly. In fact, there's a really interesting whole discussion about how um, in Dan Barber's book, um, I think it's called The Third Plate. <laughs> For some reason the name is escaping me, but I think that's the right name. But he's Sh- Chef Dan Barber from New York. He, he makes this whole very detailed argument that the cornerstone of agriculture in terms of plant agriculture should be all about creating healthy soils that create a plant that is able to resist the pests, whether they be fungal or you know insects or whatever. And that when you have a strong plant, you need to use fewer or no pesticides or herbicides because the plant itself does the work. And that, you know, it's an interesting idea that we've weakened our plants by making all these monocrops and making these very depleted soils that, you know, we're kind of creating sort of pathetic versions of a plant that once would have been able to fight off and fend off all these various forms of attack and now is not able to do that.
0: This is Hart Hagen. You're listening to The Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville.
1: So it's all connected, all these things.
0: Let me ask you this, the same thing from a little bit of a different angle. You have said that cattle help control weeds and pests without chemicals. How does that work and why is it important?
1: Yeah, well, part of it goes back to what we were just talking about, having a healthy soil that creates healthy plants. And it's also about this idea that wherever you have that animal impact or that grazing animal, they really will keep down the growth of, you know, sort of the early growing species, which allows more diversity of species to come up in any environment. And so you don't have a single um, plant dominating because, Basically, the especially the sunlight, but also the rain is more able to penetrate more areas, mm-hmm. and therefore it allows these other plants to sprout and to grow, and so you just have more natural diversity occurring in that place. And so having the grazing impact creates... know and also sort of more um, vegetative cover overall. There's um, some good research that I cite in Defending Beef about just how much density of vegetation you get in an ungrazed area versus a grazed area and it's dramatically higher where you have grazing because you actually have the opportunity to for those later sprouting species to come up and fill in these um, places on the land that might have otherwise just been kind of crowded or shadowed out by the taller growing earlier, you know, um, sprouting grasses and other plants.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm in Kentucky and we have you know, our forests uh, tend to be overrun with uh, wetter creeper and uh, bush honeysuckle and privet and some other things. And, um I used to look at those and say, "Well, I mean, I've done a lot of work just kind of cutting those things out. And then I got to the point where I'm thinking, this land needs some grazing animals. It needs the hoof impact. It needs the it needs them to to eat these things back. Uh, it needs the manure for fertilizing. And I think that there would that we could deal with a lot of our invasive species problems if we would strategically graze, uh, goats and sheep, and maybe even cattle, in some of our forests.
1: I agree with you. It's weird because we look at a lot of these places, you know, that look a certain way in our lifetimes, and we kind of think, "Oh, well, that's the way it looks," and we don't realize that the the way it looks now is so often a result of the absence of a variety of different animals that would have historically been there, whether they were domesticated animals that humans had grazing there or whether they were before that wild grazing animals. And so I think that's a really important conversation that a lot of, you know, sort of environmentalists, especially living in urban areas, haven't really gotten to that place yet. They're just beginning to wake up to that concept that there were these historic, the presence of more diversity of larger grazing animals on the land, you know, interestingly, Europe, I think they're starting to to have this conversation more, they're recognizing that they've pretty much eliminated all of their wild grazing animals, and then even their Farm animals have declined dramatically in terms of areas that are grazed, and there's been a really noticeable change in the landscape. And so they're reintroducing grazing and trying to reintroduce wild grazing animals in a lot of parts of Central Europe and other parts of Europe in order to try to restore these areas, which have basically fallen into pretty dramatic decline because of the absence of the grazing animals.
0: Right. Let me ask you this question. Can cattle have a positive impact on populations of birds and mammals?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So again, when you think about, you know, what a place should look like, and just sort of like using our our ranch as an example, we have you know, we we are in an area that where you can't grow crops, and it's also not conducive actually to trees because of the fact that it's very windy and cool. It's really meant to be this kind of open grassland area. And we do have some trees. We have a lot of trees on our ranch, but still, it's really meant to be an open, grassy area. And when you live in a place like this you see all of the species that depend on that open area and we have a huge population here of raptors and all kinds of grassland type birds and birds that hunt and they need that open space to hunt and when you um not too far from us, there's an area that was grazed and isn't now, and it's kind of brushy now. It's not on our ranch, but it's not too far away. And you see that there's a much lower level in terms of the presence of a lot of these animals that we have on our ranch than there is there because they can't effectively hunt. You the, 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 um, know, The raptors, for example, and the, the herons and the egrets and stuff, they can't hunt there, and so they don't go there. So we have seen just on our own ranch the importance of having the grazing. And we also see when we graze a field and then we move the cattle off or even when the cattle are still there, you'll you'll see a lot of the, the birds arriving in order to do the hunting, which they can do so much more easily when that thatch has cleared away, you know, that taller right. grass. Let
0: so, me ask you about that. So I, I got interested in native plants about eight years ago when I learned that ground nesting birds such as metal quail meadowlarks and bobwhite quail populations were down 80 or 90 Mm -hmm. percent largely attributable to we have fescue which is a dense mat fescue and bluegrass are a dense mat of cool season grasses and we don't have the forbs as much like goldenrod and ironweed and milkweed and we don't have as much of that so i i look at you know what we have, and I'm thinking I would love for cattle and other grazing animals to go in there and hit it hard, so that dense mat is removed, and the other things like goldenrod and ironweed uh, have have a chance to grow.
1: Yeah, exactly. Be and better interestingly, for the ground
0: nesting birds, that's what the ground nesting birds need, where they can kind of scurry in between. The, right the, they want to nest in places where the chicks can scurry and still be uh invisible to predators ca- camouflage you know?
1: yeah it's interesting with a different species the issues are somewhat different but there's a pretty urgent message coming from the Audubon Society in the last decade or so saying that you know the grassland birds in the United States all over the place it's 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 kind of the most threatened group of birds And a lot of this has to do with the fact that areas are either being developed or they're no longer being grazed. And so they've gotten into this very large effort to cooperate with ranchers around the United States to try to have um, to work together because they've actually recognized the incredible importance of uh, ranches to the preservation of birds, and so they they've come up with this phrase: "What's good for the herd is good for the bird," <laughs> because you need to you need to protect you need to protect the ranching operations, and you need to have them in order to keep the grassland birds in existence and to keep their populations healthy. And I think that's a that's the kind of stuff that gets me really hopeful because we're beginning to have a bigger picture understanding of a lot of these impacts and I think a lot of ranchers and farmers are much more interested and aware of the importance of how they're doing what they're doing and the impact that it has on soil and on wildlife and there's more and more interest in working in harmony with nature cycles and wildlife populations and I think there's a genuine kind of surge of um, excitement within agriculture and ranching to learn more about how to do to be better
0: stewards. One of the things that got my attention a couple of years back, just seeing different examples of farmers that have uh, respectable populations of wildlife, like Will Harris in Georgia, you mentioned him as a friend of yours. He says, um, you know, there are 25 bald eagles on his Property and it's the largest population of bald eagles in Georgia, according to the Department of Natural Resources there. And then um, Joel Salatin in Virginia said that he had eight, all eight species of native bumblebees hmm. in his region. Uh, so you know the, the 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 light bulb came on for me that farming farms can be habitat. Farming can not, can not only regenerate the soil and the water cycles, but farms can be habitat for wild animals.
1: Absolutely, and, and I consider both Jill and Will good friends of mine, and I really value and appreciate what they're doing, so I'm glad you mentioned them. You know, also, I think that what you were just talking about, shows why it's important for everybody who's in agriculture to be thinking about minimizing the use of um, chemicals and other kinds of mechanical practices that can really disturb areas. Mm -hmm. So things like plowing, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't think you should never plow, but I also think minimizing plowing is important. And I think anytime we apply any kind of chemical on the land, we should be very careful about that because we don't know all the effects that that could have on, you know, not just bird populations, but all of the you know, the kind of smaller animals and the microscopic animals that are part of this bigger, you know, sort of tapestry that we've been talking about, the ecosystem. And it all, everything affects something else. So I think these, you know, this idea that farms can be almost like little wildlife sanctuaries, um, I think we're moving more and more toward that and more and more understanding and appreciation of that idea. And I think that's absolutely the right direction.
0: You know, by contrast, a field of corn um, it, it is if a field of corn. A field of soy. A field of wheat is a food desert. Even if you don't right. use chemicals, right. uh, it's a it's a food desert because it's all one thing. Yeah, and the, the soil. One thing. Uh, the fact that it is all one thing means that you have to use some sort of artificial barrier, like chemical pesticides, to keep. To keep out whatever might eat it. you know.
1: Yeah. And artificial fertilizers in order to give the plant the nourishment right. that it needs to grow, which you shouldn't need to do. If you have a healthy soil, the whole system will feed the plant naturally, as well as help its own defenses against all yeah. kinds of intruders.
0: Let's talk about how um, you need living soil you need half functioning living soil with structure with porosity with a robust soil food web in order to deliver nutrients to the plant to make the plant resilient and then to make the plant nutritious to us if we eat the plant or to the animal that we eventually eat yes so.
1: yes i'll just say exactly <laughs> and i think and so to sort of take it the next level I think when you're raising grazing animals, it's important to think about the value, nutritively speaking, to the animal of everything that's on the landscape that they're grazing and not just having a healthy plant but having plant diversity, because Fred Prevenza's work is so compelling in showing that animals are capable of seeking out the nourishment that they need to stay healthy, not just to, to get the particular nutrients that they need, but maybe even to fend off diseases that they might feel coming and self-medicate through their grazing. This is a, a kind of a radical idea, I think, for a lot of people in right. agriculture, but I think the science, again, the science is pretty strong on this. And Pred has done a bunch of studies over the last several decades showing that animals will actually seek out the plants that they need to remain healthy. So if that's true, that is a really compelling argument for a diverse pasture or rangeland and having a lot of diverse plant life that they can graze so they can seek out what they need.
0: So, you know, maybe, just maybe the cow can smell something that they crave at that particular time because it's what their body needs. Uh, and it could, I'm reading David Montgomery's book, What your Food ate and he yep. he must use the word phytochemicals 20 times in the first five pages. I mean, he's into <laughs> phytochemicals. and uh, but that's the pretty ad- advanced stages of metabolism that occur when, Your uh, when you your plants live in a diverse community of plants and they live in in good soil.
1: Yes, and I also, I haven't read David Montgomery that book yet I've read several of his other books but um, he and I were on a panel together. Uh, maybe a year and a half ago when he was still working on that book and, or maybe two years ago, it wasn't, it wasn't out yet. And we talked about that book and um, I'm definitely planning on reading that book as well. Cause I agree. He's got, he's right in line with all of this and he's a really good thinker and a good scientist. And I think he's bought very much into this idea that if you have, um, in order to have healthy soils, the world over animals play an essential role.
0: Uh, what are the trends that you see? Uh, what is the future of grazing? What is the future of beef in America, based on the trends that you see?
1: Well, I think it's a good sign that more and more people are thinking about where their food comes from, and um, you know how it was raised, where it came from, and I think this idea. Of that agriculture can be regenerative. You know, these are things that were very fringe a few years back. And they're more and more mainstream within, not just within agriculture, but within sort of the mainstream population. People who are not even involved in agriculture are thinking about these things. And so I think that's all good because to get change, you have to get awareness first and then you have to get sort of motivation for change. And we need the consumer to be seeking out these products and be trying to, you know, be supporting this revolution with their dollars, their purchasing dollars. Um, so I think we're going to see more and more grass-based grazing animal um, animal husbandry, and I think we're going to see more interest and more demand from consumers for grass-based. Uh, animal-based food. So not just beef, but also things like eggs and dairy coming from truly grazing animals. And of course, we know that, you know, hens don't, they're not grazers in the sense that cattle are, but they benefit tremendously from being on grass. So, um, and the food is much more, uh, not just delicious, but nourishing. So Mm -hmm. I think that whole idea is getting more widely accepted. So I think we're going to see continuing and stronger demand from consumers for grass-based foods, for the reduction of the use of chemicals, hormones, and you know antibiotics and things like that in, in the animal husbandry. So added to the feed and all that thing, that's still pretty widespread practice in the United States. I think we're going to see more and more demand that that be eliminated and possibly even legislation for getting rid of that kind of practice. So I think those are positive developments. And I'm excited that at at the state level, places like California and other states, but also at the federal level, we're beginning to see some shifting in the incentives in agriculture. So there's some focus on this idea of um, agricultural practices that will actually reincorporate more carbon into the soil like we've been talking about. and. Um, I think those are the right kinds of incentives, because right now, you know, there's still a subsidy system that really just kind of rewards production. And we don't that's not the right system. We need a, a system that rewards good stewardship and rewards biodiversity and the create the creation of ecosystems on farms, as we've been talking about. So I think there are some positive signs in all of these things. There's a lot of work to do. But I, you know, for myself, I I have a lot of um, optimism about the the um, awakening to a lot of these ideas and the fact that I think more and more people are interested in real food and are recognizing the danger of processed food. And when you focus on trying to make your diet one of real food, things like meat, you know, and beef and butter, milk, eggs, those are really valuable foods. And so I think we're going to see. A reappreciation of those kinds of foods, which have been sort of, you know, more and more, we've sort of been told these are kind of optional things <laughs> that we don't need them. In fact, maybe we shouldn't even be eating them. But I encounter people all the time now that I think are starting to say, I'm trying to eat real food. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the key to good health. And on the agricultural side, the way that we get there is by focusing on soil health and biodiversity. So it's all related. And I think um, I think there's a lot of good, you know, there's a lot of work ahead of us, but there's a lot of good things ahead of us. So I'm optimistic.
0: Thank you for joining me for this conversation with Nicolette Hahn-Nyman, author of Defending Beef. This is Hart Hagen on Forward Radio, 106.5 FM, Louisville.